When did you last share the good news um, of Jesus Christ with someone? When did you last endeavour in any form of conversation to, to just bring someone to, to a little bit more understanding of what you've put your hope and trust in if you are a Christian? Have you prayed recently for a friend, a, a neighbour, a colleague, that you might be able to have some form of conversation about the Lord Jesus Christ with them? Or maybe you do this. Maybe you isolate yourself in, at work, maybe in your community of friends, or the community in which you live, because you're concerned and you feel a burden because you know the Bible and you, you know you ought to, but you kind of keep back a little bit because that's a more comfortable place to be sometimes, isn't it? You fear what people might say. And what do we... What's the thing that we're actually trying to convey to them? Let's just think of the gospel for a second. That good news is that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. And then he was nailed to a cross. They could not find anything to condemn him for that, um, for that punishment. But he suffered a punishment. And he did so as a substitute. That is, he did it in our place. The justice that my rebellion deserves against God, he bore on him, on the cross. He died in our place. He died, he was buried. And of course then, death could not hold him. He rose again. And he's seen by hundreds of people. And not only recorded in the Bible, you can go to the, the Jewish history, you can go to the Greek history. It's recorded in so many historical accounts. He ascended into heaven, as we saw in Acts chapter 1. And that is the history, the good news, the gospel that we have put our trust in if we are Christians. It is his life at judgment that will be counted as ours. As someone who has put my faith in Jesus, yeah, I'll, be stand at judge, I'll, I'll stand at judgment, but I will not be judged according to my life, which, to be honest, is messy at times. It is pretty horrible at times. But I will be judged according to Jesus' perfect life. It will be counted as mine. And God will welcome me home forever. That is the gospel of which we are called to proclaim if we are Christians. Why do I not tell that to my friends, to my neighbours, to my colleagues? I guess sometimes I, I just simply lose focus. Don't you do that? You concentrate about other things in life. Whether it's the children, it's the work, it's the pressures, it's the sport, it's whatever it is. And sometimes it's just because I fear. I fear what they may say. Do you? So what can we do? I guess as responsible Christians under God's sovereignty, yet yeah, how is God's church to grow in this country, in this great city, in this place called Earlsfield? The reality is we are a very, very small church in a, in a, in a place, Earlsfield, the electoral borough, which is about ten to 12,000, something like that, in a huge city of about 10 and 11 million. And... We have a very daunting task, Acts 1, verse 8, to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That, I think, probably includes this area too. 
But the problem is, just getting the gospel to the end of our streets, getting it to the end of our office desk, that's a daunting task in itself, isn't it? Well, the apostles, they've been charged to be witnesses of Christ to the whole earth, and I guess they would have felt limited in numbers, given the, given the circumstances you read about that, the numbers in, in the first chapter of Acts. And I guess they were feeling quite small, as we do. And they face hostility from the religious, religious establishment, as we do. They were struggling to see what they should do and how that they would be able to accomplish this huge mission. I guess we feel the same too. I mean, the similarities are there, but on this unique historic occasion, on the day of Pentecost, God poured out his Spirit on his rescued people, his witnesses, his trained and appointed apostles, to do what? To speak of Christ to the nations. The Spirit's presence among them would enable them to speak fearlessly. And now they're going to speak in public. Firstly in Jerusalem, but Acts is amazing because it expands out then to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, as promised in chapter 1, verse 8. The Spirit's presence was going to be seen in the most amazing way. Just cast your eyes down in chapter 2, verse 41. You begin to see the work there as 3,000 were added to the kingdom of God that day. You see, if we fear, if we are ashamed, if we're in despair at our inability to even make our colleagues know that we are Christians, and I think we probably have all felt that at some point, then I think what we're looking at here in Acts 2 gives us the reason to be assured, to be confident, because God is providing here, where we read now, everything that is necessary for that mission which he has called us to fulfil. Let's look at Acts 2. Firstly, a bit of big picture stuff. Acts chapter 2, it's kind of a three-part story. It begins with Luke's very vivid account of, in verses 1 to 13, of Pentecost itself, the day of Pentecost. Then it continues, Peter stands up as he does very regularly in the first sort of six chapters. He stands up, he speaks, he addresses the crowd. And it's kind of a two-parter, if you like. The first time he explains what has occurred um, through the Old Testament scriptures. We see that, and we're going to look at that in a moment in Joel chapter 2, verses 14 to, to, to 21 of our, our passage today. Then, in the second half of his talk, his speech, if you like, he points to Christ. And he shows us how he fulfills the prophecies. Third part of the chapter is just the last few verses, verses 42 to 47. And it shows us the wonderful effect that these events had in the city of Jerusalem. That fe- the effect that would later spread and go to throughout the world, even to reach Earlsfield, of all places. I hope we're praying for a similar effect. So let's dive in. Um, Outline, we're kind of there. First point there, the giving and the arrival of God's Holy Spirit. Let's cast our eyes down, verses 1 to 13. And we're kind of there. Look at verse 1, if you can, to begin with. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Luke, again, is details, isn't it? Place and time are noted. Now, the, the place is vague. The time is accurate. Place doesn't matter. Time does. Because it's the day of Pentecost, and that is critical. This feast was the the middle one of three kind of harvest festivals. It was either called the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, simply because the Greek word Pentecostus means 50th. 
So it's seven weeks after the Passover, roughly, 50 days, okay? And when the harvesting began. So Passover, it began 50 days into that. Now, what about the day of Pentecost then? I've put three quick observations, three quick observations about these quite weird events that are going on here, as recorded here. But firstly, just get a big picture of what Pentecost is about. Firstly, I want to say, it's, it's about... It's a big picture. It's about God's salvation plan. A revival of Israel, that is God's people, true Israel, God's faithful people, that had been promised centuries before in the Old Testament. So those who were dead before God spiritually were to be made alive, God promises, in Jeremiah 31. He said he would enable people to keep his laws because he was going to dwell in their hearts. That was the old covenant promise. And the giving of the Spirit at this unique event here is a part of that plan that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31. And it's now made effective through Jesus Christ. So the eternal Son of God becomes man, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, dies on a cross. We remember that Good Friday. He rose again Easter Sunday. And now we get to, um, finally, God sends his, so Christ sends his Spirit to equip his servants until the final day of his salvation plan, when he returns again. And when he sends his spirit, that equipping of his people, we celebrate at Whitson, the day of Pentecost. It's a unique day in God's big picture salvation plan. Secondly, Pentecost was, it was an empowering of apostles. It was an empowering of apostles for their unique and critical role in that salvation plan. So they're empowered by the Spirit to write down the events of Christ, his life and his ministry. So, and, and they were empowered to preach that message to the whole world, to Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So secondly, Pentecost is an empowering of the apostles. Thirdly, Pentecost is also, it's like a pattern of growth for the kingdom of God. So the gift of the Spirit is a unique, it's an unrepeatable event. But we can all still benefit from the, the, the ministry of the Spirit as it's been given at Pentecost. So the apostles, they preach the gospel, as we are called today, wherever and whenever we can. And that is the real means of growth in God's church throughout the world. See, if you want to know how churches grow, yeah, you might want to turn to a bit of you know, let's look at some church strategy or, you know, let's do, look at presentation, how things are done and what they look like and so on. No. If you put your trust in that, yeah, it may work for a while, but real church growth, as shown through the gift of the Spirit and his continuing ministry through the apostles, is shown in the empowered proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts shows us the only real and true way to see how churches grow through the proclamation of the gospel. So the Holy Spirit, it is given. Let's now look at the, what, what happens, if you like. And I begin with kind of three phenomena. You see, I've put that, that, those, those things down there. Let's look briefly at these. They're remarkable events, aren't they? I mean, in a sense, quite strange. And all these accompanying signs seem to happen. Yeah, they seem like natural phenomena. That is, you've got wind, you've got fire... And you've got speech. Do you see those down in the first few verses? But the thing is, the noise was not wind. 
and the fire there was, was the side of fire, but it kind of resembled it. And the speech was in language that was not ordinary for that situation. So let's have a look at those individually. Firstly, the sound of wind. Okay, the sound of wind. See that in verse 2. Cast your eyes down there. You see, it's, um, it was like a blowing wind. You notice the difference there? It's not a blowing wind, but it was like a blowing wind. I guess what was being experienced by the apostles was, was, was more than just a sensory experience. There's something more significant to this sign. You'll see that in all of them, actually. That they were hearing, in the original, it's actually the very wind of God. That is the very breath, creating breath of God. That same breath which brought, uh, brought this world into its existence and sustains this world was now empowering God's people to proclaim the good news of Christ. So firstly, the sounds of the wind are pretty extraordinary. Secondly, sight of fire. You see that? Flaming heads with all the apostles. I don't know how. Whatever. You were there. But at least they seem to be tongues of fire. Now think about it. Why fire? Well, fire is purifying, isn't it? And what, it's appropriate, therefore, for the almighty presence of a great and perfect God who will cleanse his people. You see, all the signs, all these phenomena are significant. Wind empowerment, fire cleansing. Let's look at verse 4. You see that? The, all those languages, the sound of all those languages, as they were filled with the Spirit, they're enabled to speak num- a number of languages. All those nations mentioned. There are all these crowds in Jerusalem. They gathered in verse 5 from all of the known world. They gathered to see this spectacle. And it seems like these men are displaying these amazing abilities, speaking in so many different languages and dialects. And such amazement. I love this little verse. Let cast your eyes down to verse 7. It is the most patronising verse I think I've ever read. Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? I suppose, I've just been away on a, on a camping trip. Uh, Garrett was there. He's looking a bit haggard. We, we had a, bit, a great time away uh, with some of the, the young boys. Uh, it would be like, and I had this this weekend, it would be like two English gentlemen stood at a barbecue and, and cooking steaks really well <laughs> without burning them. And two South African gentlemen walking past and saying, are not they, two Englishmen, cooking steaks really well? There's a sense of patronising kind of, ooh, we're not expecting that, are we? See, what the crowd saw, they saw fishermen from Galilee. Ooh, lower people than we are in Jerusalem. Fishermen from Galilee. Now, normally, they would have really struggled to understand a word. They said they were from the north, from Galilee. And Galileans, they struggled with their gutturals, apparently, and they had all sorts of problems swallowing their vowels. Perhaps a bit of hybrid of Scouse and Geordie put together. Yeah, who knows? But they now are speaking many languages with clarity, and the people are understanding them. Now, back in Genesis 10, at the beginning of the Bible, we studied that last year in our groups, there's a list of nations of the world, isn't there? Just before they rebel against God in the building of the Tower of Babel, it's recorded there, all this list of nations. And God, in his judgment, scatters them, doesn't he? And frustrates them in their 
numerous languages and dialects. Luke now records a very similar but representative list from Genesis 10. Uh, in verses 9 to 11, you can see them, which Neil read brilliantly. Uh, and they are being addressed now in their own languages. In a sense, what is happening is a reversal of that judgment from God in Genesis 10. See, the gospel message of Christ now brings unity to the whole world as, as people are brought together from all nations under the rule of Jesus Christ. And, and that, I was speaking to someone this week, it's really important that we know that. That our unity is first and foremost in Christ and in nothing else. Who we are, where we're from, how we speak, what kind of jobs we do, it just doesn't really matter. They're so, so, so secondary in comparison to our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. They hear the gospel and that is what will unite them under Christ. Verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The wonders of God brings us together. We're united in him. I mean, these are extraordinary and unique events, but sadly they've been, I think, unhelpfully misused by many. Now, to the cynic, uh, maybe into the kind of secular kind of mindset, like some in the passage, they think this is just a drunken shouting match, don't they? And Peter responds to that in the following verses. We'll look at that in a moment. But remember the fruit of the Spirit. It's self-control. And this is the harvest time for the Jewish people. And in the harvest time, they fasted from uh, dusk until the services are finished in the morning. So to point the finger here and say that these Jews would have been drunk is just utterly ridiculous. It just wouldn't have happened in that culture. In a sense, many commentators just say, well, it's more a kind of a joke rather than a serious comment. Because they're just not sure what's going on. But for many, actually, these verses are a justification for using uh, the, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, as described in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Uh, but doing so in a, in a public way, because it's public here in Acts chapter 2. And doing so without interpretation, which is a clear um, kind of consideration that must be made within 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Now the problem with that. It's a big subject, but let me just go a little bit to it. The problem with that kind of jump is that actually there are different words used in Acts 2 than there are in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 in the Greek. The spiritual tongue, which is described in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, the Greek word is glossolalia, which basically means a tongue speech. Now that actually, if you've never heard it, it, it can sound quite odd. I mean, it can sound odd because it's a spiritual language and not everyone is given that gift or should desire that gift, but it is a gift from God. But Paul warns again and again in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 that that gift is to be used only in public settings if it is also accompanied with the gift of interpretation. That is, someone speaks in a spiritual tongue and that is followed by an interpretive word. Now the purpose of speaking any tongue, whether it's a spiritual tongue or a a tongue of another dialect, which is essentially the word here in Acts chapter 2, it's another dialect. The purpose of both tongues is very, very similar actually. And that is clarity of understanding. You see, in the use of both tongues, the primary factor that makes it a gift of the Spirit is understanding. 
Here in the book of Acts, here we see people understood as Christ was now proclaimed in their own language. Sadly, I've been to far too many services where the gift of tongues is actually encouraged to be used publicly and there is never any interpretation. There is an incoherent babble around, around the church that no one can understand. And it actually does sound like the slander that we hear in Acts chapter 2. It, it sounds like a drunken mass. Therefore, Christ is not proclaimed. If you want to ask more about that, please do come and see me later. I mean, I think the only thing that can be justified from these extraordinary historic events is that Christ must be heard, explained clearly, and to the whole world. The Spirit has been poured out to make that possible. So what is the response? I think there are two. Cast your eyes down. Look at verse 12 and 13. Two responses. Amazed and perplexed. They go, what does this mean? I think that's fairly rational, isn't it? It's a bit crazy. What does this mean? And verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. So there's amazement, but there's cynicism. Two responses. So Peter takes this opportunity now and he dresses the crowd. He does this all the time through Acts. And let's have a look at it, shall we? Verse 14. Now, I'll just read verse 14 to 16. Follow with me if you can. Peter stood up with the eleven apostles, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. We'll look at that little prophecy in a moment. But so our second point, and it's actually much briefer, so don't panic too much. Um, God's spirit is poured out. And it meant the prophesying of salvation was to begin. And we'll look at that in a minute. Verse 14 and 20. Firstly, we see, though, in those first few verses, that Peter explains all that's gone on, all the phenomena. Follow with me if you can. See, Peter is not satisfied with just leaving people open to kind of speculation and questioning. He wants clarity of understanding. And he doesn't actually turn to the rational, the scientific argument. He doesn't try and explain away the phenomena either. It just points to the obvious. It's only nine in the morning. You know what Jews are like at this time. It's harvest. They've been fasting. It's nine in the morning. There's no way that they could have been drunk. He doesn't explain away. Rather, now he turns to Old Testament scripture. And he turns to this little known prophet of Joel. He wants to show that that because God's spirit is poured out, it meant that salvation, as being foretold, was about to begin to the whole world. The saving of gospel of Jesus was about to spread geographically. And what was promised to the people of God through Joel? Peter now explains that it has been fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit. So Peter shows they'll be prophesying for all people. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me if you can. They'll be prophesying for all people. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. Now, for your cynics around, you might have turned back to Joel 2. And you see that the words are slightly different. We notice that. Um, now, that was commonplace. When we quote, generally we quote verbatim, don't we just say every detail has to be exact. That was not the case in ancient literature, and therefore this is normal practice. Um, in Joel, uh, uh, this section begins with the words afterwards, that is after suffering, that's the context that Joel was writing. But here in Luke he says, 
in the last days. Do you notice that? And he does that, he does that to show, really importantly, that the days have come when we all wait for now, there's one bit left of God's big salvation plan, and that is for Christ to return. That is what the last days are. We are in them now, waiting for Christ to return. And basically you're saying, it's not long. But in this time, God has poured out his spirit. And note that, God doesn't kind of give us a little drizzle of his spirit. You know, like some raspberry coulis in some restaurant. Have you ever been to one of those like, slightly more expensive restaurants? You get the hugest plate, you get the tiniest piece of food, and they think it totally fine to just give a little drizzle of something over the top. And you think, I've paid for that? No, it's incredible. No, when God pours out his spirit, you get everything. More than you can ever imagine. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, implying once poured out, can't pour out anymore. The gift is for all peoples, and the gift is final, there is no more. Why do we get this spirit? Verse 17. Hello. So all people will be able to speak about God to declare his wonders. That's what verse 17 is pointed to. That's why we get the spirit, to declare his wonders. And Now this thing about dreaming dreams, have you noticed that? Now that is kind of a poetic description of what was commonplace and a classic activity of the kind of Old Testament prophets. Now it doesn't exclude the fact that people can dream dreams today and that God can use those dreams. Now the thing about that, and it's a risky practice to say, oh I've dreamt a dream, let me tell you what it says and that's God speaking to you, is that it's ultra subjective. Um, This one mention of dreaming dreams doesn't make that normative within the church. It didn't then in the New Testament and it doesn't now. Rather, the emphasis is that what was once reserved for the elite few was now to be the privilege of you and me. The Holy Spirit would enable all of us to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. Secondly, Peter wants to show that, um, that God wonder, God's wonders are for all to see. We see that in verses 19 and 20. Cast your eyes down there. You get these great miracles. Amazing things will happen. But notice the shift in time in verses 19 and 20. So verse 17, 18, last days. You see that? Verse 19, 20, speak of a period of time known as the end times. And basically that is just the last moments before Christ returns to finish his salvation plan and gather his children home. In that line of events in God's salvation history, Pentecost, what we're reading about here, is, is like the penultimate event. And then we have the uh, last days, which finishes with the end times. And Pentecost inaugurates and, or begins the last days, which end when Christ returns. The Bible accurately foretells all the events of God's salvation plan. We know that Christ will return. We know as we see these verses that at that point, God's amazing power will be for all to see. There'll be no television programs. You know, when you get a kind of a a scientist and an astronomer and someone else sort of saying, yeah, we've seen these clouds in the sky and we're not totally sure what it is. It could be, but no, look at verse 19. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. I'm not sure the speculation will be there. 
the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. I suppose the implication is, are you ready for that? Are you ready? Christ is coming to judge. And can I gently say, if you don't think he is, then be careful because every single one of God's promises has been fulfilled. Every single one. Except one. That he will return to judge. That's a massive speculation. If you think he's not going to return. But for now. Look at the last verse. As we wait in these last days. Salvation is available through Jesus Christ. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is anyone who prays for forgiveness and mercy. And humbles themselves before God. Will be saved. For some of us here, I guess we just need to grasp the reality of that. That we need to humble ourselves before an almighty and perfect God. And we need saving for heaven, from hell. The Spirit has been given at Pentecost so that we might be saved from Christ's fair and just judgment. Through the hearing of that good news which I began with. So I'll begin as I, I'll finish as I began. Let me ask these questions. When did you last share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone? When did you last endeavour in a conversation to, to bring someone around to see something of the goodness and the kindness of Jesus Christ and his offer of himself on the cross for their sin in their place. Let's keep proclaiming this gospel. For by it, and through the Spirit empowering us and calling people, many will be saved. That's what Acts tells us. And God's church will grow and he will be glorified. I hope you want that. Let's pray that that is the case. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Heavenly Father, it does seem so simple and childlike in some ways. But for many of us here, we have thought about this, investigated as much as we possibly can, and we have been convinced that if we call on the name of the Lord and trust Him and the gift of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins in our place, we believe you, and we believe we will be saved when we stand before you at judgment. Lord, if there are any here today who are still considering that, may they call on the name of the Lord. It is simple, and it requires a, a, a simplicity of, of, of trust in the one, the only one who can save us. But it does require a humility of heart, and I pray that we would all humble ourselves before you, call on you, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust in his salvation. Amen. Thank you.
Well, we're going to sing again the final hymn, O Church of Arise. 